Roy, taken by Jimmy Green up, on for Cockle. He did well! Oh, that's a brilliant goal! That is a superb goal by Steve Cockle! Oh, he clipped that at such a lovely angle! He was under pressure, he was running out of ground on a difficult surface, and he chipped it with consummate skill right over the head of Corrigan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the United Podcast. We are currently sat in Old Trafford. We can look out over the pitch. It's a nice sunny day. There's loads of tours going on. And I am, of course, with... Helen Evans. And David May. Oh, that was there nice. It's Marathon Day. Marathon yeah. Day, Manchester. Mm-hmm. And our guest, actually, his son is running the Manchester Marathon. He is. He is. We, sh- we should have got... Oh my goodness, why am I only thinking about this now? We should have done a leg each. United, United podcast marathon team next year, guys. I don't think they let you do marathons in relay teams. Oh, is that just in Belfast we do that? Well, like each, you mean like run in it? Yeah, so you split it up into like, you do the first leg, four miles. Do they not do that in Manchester? No, I don't, I've never heard of that as a marathon. Like, if you're running your marathon, run your marathon. You can't do like a bit and then oh, get no, someone else to Belfast, run a bit. Belfast, in the Belfast marathon, we can split it up into legs. Oh, no. Right. I'm away that week. I was going to suggest we can invite Quentin Fortune. If you've listened to Quentin's podcast, you will know. <laughs> Quentin cannot do the last leg. <laughs> he can't do any. He can't do any marathons. Um, it is lovely to be back at Old Trafford, though. Yeah, it is. And it's it's it is a lovely day. Like the pitch it is, is a amazing, lovely isn't sunny it? day. Makes everybody feel better, and I think our listeners will be very happy to hear this voice on the podcast. Steve Koppel has been mentioned yeah. so many times since we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. A lot of ex-players have spoken about him as well. He's, he's like he's an iconic number seven, isn't he? That's that's part of it. He's part of the history of the club and that rich legacy of that shirt. Yeah, Maisie. Sorry, but Sam and I probably are too young to yeah. remember watching Steve play. She's quite old. <laughs> what, this, is, this is what I love about this podcast. I get absolutely slated. Every Obviously, we can look back on videos. You always see the old games replayed. In fact, my dad was actually watching the 1979 FA Cup final a couple of weeks ago whenever I was at home. But anyway. I'd have been nine then. Obviously, you were just. Yeah, a, but that's. Yeah. That's, you know that's just, the games that you remember most yeah. of all when you're like nine or ten. I think, I think when you look at. Um, past games of of Manchester United and you know the archives and stuff like that and the big match and stuff like that you always look at and you always associate Man United having flying wingers always and he was the epitome of a flying winger 1v1 against a fullback take him on take him on never afraid to to lose a ball and um, a wonderful cross for the ball absolutely sensational and as you just said there you know to have him on the pod because I don't think he does a, an actual lot of media no. other than, I don't know, maybe the odd appearance on Sky, but... No, very little since he's very little. So finished his So to get him on career. the podcast is absolutely also, an, an absolute brilliant thing, really is. An incredible career as a manager. Mm-hmm. Managed over a thousand games, won manager of the season twice with Reading and FA Cup final with Crystal yeah. Palace. Like I said, an unbelievable career in football. And a lot of achievements with yeah. promotions as well. Yeah. And a thing I didn't know that I'm, we'll get into, it's because he had to retire at 28 because he was injured. I know. I mean, that seems extraordinary, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's just getting to your prime, I would imagine. 27, 28, 29 is when you're just coming into your, your ilk of your career. You know, you're mature and you know everything about the game. And to get it cut short, it must be a horrible feeling, but... He's a he's a, a master of study. He did that when he was a, you know, during his early career. Mm-hmm. He carried on his um, his university. So, really looking forward to this. Oh, let's I get into that, shall we? There he is, Steve Koppel. Steve Koppel, welcome to the Manchester United podcast. It is really great to have you because it's been a long time at coming this podcast. We've tried to arrange it so many times, but we are absolutely delighted to have you. Um, tell us why you're in Manchester at the moment, actually. Uh, well, very fortunately, my uh, my younger son is a, quite a keen runner and he's here for the uh, the marathon. He's He uh, made his debut in the marathon last year. He did the Liverpool marathon and... Uh, He's now working his way. He's doing Manchester this weekend. And hopefully in October, he'll be doing London as well. So he's hoping for a fast time round about just over three hours. So uh, hopefully be at the finish line to cheer him on and get some food down his neck and maybe yeah. the odd pint. But 
Is are those <coughs> running genes from you? Uh, like he's a very keen footballer, but. Uh, Maybe not the best. He is the perfect lad to have in your squad because even if he's not playing, he's on the touchline, he you know, cuts the oranges and, <laughs> and he loves it, which is the most important thing. You know, it's a, it, my, my, my eldest son, he was a good player and he got to about 12 or 13 and uh, it, it came to an age where there was a, le- a fair bit of, verbal banter around and he was on the wrong end of it obviously the name was a little bit of a burden at that stage he was a different kind of player to me uh, he was like a holding midfield player and not very quick but a good player and you know a good vision and he just said I'm, I'm just not enjoying it I'm getting blasted here by the other no team way. and other people so no. he took up golf and he ended up with a golf scholarship to America so he he did really well out of a change of sport I suppose Sounds better. <laughs> Sounds better than playing football. Huh? <laughs> Maisie's a keen golfer. We do hear oh, about yeah. that on most podcasts. All the time, yeah. Well, I, I am too. I'm a very keen golfer. So, uh, yeah, not very good, but very keen. Well, we do what we can to stay on track. Yeah. <laughs> um, was that difficult for you with your oldest son where you said maybe the name was a bit of a burden? Yes, it was, to be honest. Um, he, he used to play in the, the Tandridge League, which is one of the biggest kids' league certainly in the south of England, and very, very competitive. He used to play, he used to play against uh, some players now who've made careers. Uh, Bradley Wright Phillips played for a team, a famous team from the Brixton area uh, called 10MB. Jason Punchin, who, mm-hmm. who played for Palace, yeah. now still playing in Cyprus. Uh, so a lot of good, good players came through that that standard, and it was very, very competitive. And you know all the st- stories you hear about parents who saying too much and threatening referees. You know it all <laughs> went on in those days. So he just got to the stage where you know he he, he wanted to play, but he didn't want the name calling and all that. So I understood completely, and it was good for me because we both were now playing golf together, which. You know, as a father and son bonding is yeah. a real great thing to have. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that you say that, though. And if you don't mind me saying, we don't hear from you a lot in the media. No, not at all. Nothing. Is that a personal choice? Because your name has come up in so many of our podcasts and in so many of the ex-players have talked about you yeah. um, so highly. But we don't hear from you very often. Do you prefer just to have a quiet yeah. life now that... I'd, well, yes and no. I suppose when at various stages, uh, as a coach in particular, when you're looking for a job, you have to play the game. You go on the TV, you go yeah. on the radio, you make people hear you and hopefully they think you know what you're talking about. And that has always been, um, you know, if you go on Sky on a Sunday morning, that was the route to get a job if you were out of work. So for a certain period, uh, I did that. And and also with Match of the Day and that, you know, the live telly and the challenge of doing that. Live television is, I'm sure you'll all appreciate it, is, is, is so demanding when people say three, two, one, and you think, oh my word, what's going on? And the pressure, again, I enjoyed that. I really did enjoy the challenge of doing that. Um, but it got to a certain time. You know, the LMA now do courses in media training. The PFA do courses in media training. Yeah. You get people who've just retired, who are yeah. tremendously good-looking and very photogenic, whereas, you know, I look in the mirror and I see my granddad and I'm thinking, what's going on? <laughs> so I, I made a deliberate decision many years ago that, Occasionally I will do it, but not very often at all. I don't play the game. I don't have an agent. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd still like to be connected somewhere, but because I don't play the game, chances are I never will be. And I'm I'm fairly comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Is there any other uh, aspect of football that you'd still want to be working in? Or is there stuff you're doing that we don't know about? Because no, I, obviously you were a manager for so many years. Yeah, yeah. And my last managing job was, was I did three seasons in India. And I did that purely again because of the challenge, not because, I, you know, I was desperate to, to manage or coach again. It was just the challenge of go, seeing India. Um, you know, the, the Indian League you get so many foreign players and you get so many Indian players. And in a very short space of time, you have to sort of gel it all together and, and form a, a, 
a unit which can be effective. And that was a, a great challenge. But since I come back, I, I would love to be associated somewhere. I've got, I feel as if I've got a lot to offer just in terms of advice. You know, I look at so many teams make recruitment decisions about coaches and, and coaching staff. And I think, how on earth did you end up at that decision? How on earth did you appoint him? What were you expecting? And a year later, it all falls apart and breaks down. And, you know, everyone blames the manager. But, you know, one of the things I always say about management, there are 70 odd clubs you don't want to manage because you've got absolutely no chance. Mm. The art of management is choosing the clubs who are on the rise, who are underperforming or who are just good. We've got a, a, a beautifully stable network around the manager to almost anticipate problems and help him through those and give him the, the chance to express himself as a coach and a uh, a divisor of football teams, successful football teams. Sounds like we're doing an interview here, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to us about life growing up in Liverpool. Um, we should just get this out of the way. Who did you support? And then we'll move on. Oh, I was a, a big Liverpool fan. Right. Um, my, my father, my family, um, my father, my brother, uh, 1959-60, when Liverpool got promotion from the second division to the first division, I, I miss one game that season. My dad used to go, uh, not the cop end, the Anfield Road end. He would go the Anfield Road end with my brother. He dropped me off at the boys' pen. They don't have boys' pens anymore. How old was you then, Steve? Four or five, literally. What? Yeah, yeah. My dad had dropped me off in the, in wow. the little tiddler and he picked me up at the end of the game. I used to stand outside the, the uh, entrance to the boys' pen right. and wait for him to pick me up. And then when I got older, a little bit older, a little bit bigger, he's on, he used to take me to the Anfield Road with him. But I used to sit on the barriers. Remember the old steel yeah. barriers? I'd be sitting on the barrier and he'd be standing behind me. Liverpool with my team when they won the FA Cup in 1965. It was a big thing for me personally. And because um, I had an older brother, I had a brother who was six years older than me. You know, I'd go and play football with him. So football was always part of my daily mm -hmm. diet did your dad play football as well or yeah yeah he, did. yeah he told me he was a you know superstar he was in the navy of the war and all this right. he, he couldn't really uh, uh, do anything of any great standard mm -hmm. but he was a very very keen player and always a very keen supporter you know watching me as yeah. dads do he'd always be on the touchline and he was never critical never really said anything we play I'd play a game and he never ever gave advice if I asked for advice he would give me so it, it was it was good he wasn't a pushy parent he was taxi parent just quickly and then we'll carry on who do you support now it's a difficult one to say because I have uh, lots of uh, affections I would say you know I spent 16 years at Palace so you know just under a quarter of my life working at Palace so I have a huge affection Liverpool yes United obviously when Liverpool play United people say who do you want to win and now I would say the best team but the, the team who play best on the day there's no real I'm desperate for one team to win it just doesn't work that way I'm, I'm sure you appreciate when you're yeah, yeah. playing for different yeah. clubs it holds a place in your heart but it doesn't take over your heart you sound like you just want to watch good football yeah yeah no matter I, where I, it is I, I do yes and a certain type of football there is yeah. you know there are types of football now and you, you, so much available on TV after five minutes of some games you think oh I'll watch the adverts on the other side <laughs> you know it's more appealing you must have some affection towards Tranmere because that's yeah. where you got your first break of course you were studying up until yeah. that point yeah. uh, but they were the ones that give you your first chance in professional football yeah, in a sort of backhanded way as well. I, I played I played in the first Liverpool primary 11. You know, first 10, 11-year-olds, primary 11. I played in that. And at 10, 11, like I thought I was a good player. I thought, I'm, you know, I'm not bad at this. And then when I was selected for Liverpool boys, I then sort of projected forward and I thought 15, 16, I'll play for Liverpool boys, the meaningful team. Because yeah. at that age group, that's when they were, kids were signed to, mm -hmm. to play. You'd be on the, the ground staff, they used to call it then. 
used to do all the jobs around the ground, but it was a route through to be a professional footballer. And at 10, 11 years of age, I wanted to be a professional footballer. I passed my 11 plus, which meant I then went to a grammar school. And um, basically from 10, 11, I don't think I grew till I was 17. And, you know, I said before, my dad never sort of criticised and I'd complain sometimes, you know, I'd be four foot whatever, playing against lads who were shaving, who were five foot, <laughs> 11, six foot. And my dad would say, well, if you're good enough, you're big enough. Yeah. And I'd say, well, it, it don't work, you know. <laughs> I'm a little boy playing against men. And then I got to about, uh, well, 17. I wasn't five foot till I was 17. And I was playing for a boys club then. I got to my present huge stature and um, started playing well for my boys club. And we had a strong boys club team. I was playing, you know, in my sixth form at school. I never got in the first 11 until the second year of my sixth form. So that, you know, shows sort of relative uh, performances. And my boys club, my second year of A-levels, um, my boys club got to the final of the the Liverpool boys club competition, which was played at Anfield. Uh, and I was getting a little bit of a, a reputation, I suppose, as being a decent player at that level. And after one of my boys club games, there was a Tranmere scout there and he said, we're having a trial, would you like to come along? And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, I'm revising for my A-levels. Can't do it, don't have the time. And then luckily for me, about a week before my A-level started, he phoned up again. He said, listen, just on the off chance, he says, we're having a game this weekend, another trial game. And he said the magic words, Prenton Park. He said, we're playing the game of Prenton Park. And I thought, well, I've got to have a slice of that. I'll find time to go. So we went for the trial game at Prenton Park and I scored a hat-trick in the trial game. So um, they said, you know, what are your plans? You know, I'm just almost 18 at this time. Mm-hmm. And they said, what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm due to go to university. When do you start university? I said, we start in October. Well, come and train with us during the summer, they said. And it was, you know, no money was mentioned, but I thought, oh, yeah, quite fancy I've got nothing to do I'll go training with them and to my immense good fortune playing the manager of Tranmere Rovers at the time was Ron Yates playing for them in goal was Tommy Lawrence who was affectionately known as the flying pig Mm -hmm. but he was a really good goalkeeper and to get to training he used to live in Lee to get to training he used to drive past my house in Liverpool so he gave me a lift every morning which for me, as a young Liverpool fan, I've watched Tommy play mm. hundreds of times. To hear the stories he came out with on the drive mm-hmm. to train in the Tranmere and back through the tunnel, it was you know it was Nirvana for me. It was it was terrific, and uh, I I made sort of slow progress. For some reason, I wanted to play in the football league as an amateur, so uh, some kind of Corinthian spirit and. <laughs> Obviously, Tranmere at the time were all too happy for me to achieve that objective. So for a year, I played, uh, they gave me expenses. I used to get the ferry over to Tranmere for the whole game. I didn't get in the first team my first year, just in the reserves and help along. And then my second second year at university, I signed a part-time contract, £10 a week. And halfway through my second year at university, I got a phone call um, from the general manager of Tranmere, a fellow called Dave Russell. He said to me, uh, I've got Tommy Doherty in the office here. He says, uh, get your ass over here quick. He said, we've agreed a fee, uh, £60,000, come and uh, speak to the doc. So no agents then and nothing. This is year? Year two at university, 1974. Right. My second year at university, the first team were actually away at Aldershot. We were playing Aldershot on the Saturday. It was in the first team at this stage. They were at Aldershot. They'd come down to the army camp for a week's train at the army camp. And because I had lectures and tutorials, I couldn't go. So hence the reason why I was home. I got the, uh, I think I had a car at that stage. I drove over to Tranmere. 
And as I said to you, I was earning £10 a week. And Dave Russell, the general manager of Tramia, said, listen, Doc's in the office. He said, I've told him you're earning £30 a week. So if he asks you, £30 a week, okay. Yeah. So I go in, meet the Doc. Doc says to me, he said, listen, he says, I haven't seen you play. <laughs> he says, but people whose opinions I respect have said you're a decent player, so we've agreed to sign you. How much are you earning? I said, £30 a week. He said, I'll double it. And I'm convinced he did it just for effect. So if yeah. I'd have said £40 a week, £50 a week. And as I came out of the office, I thought, oh, I've missed something here. I've definitely lost a few bob on that. Especially because your degree was in economics exactly. at the time. <laughs> Not negotiation, so I was... Oh. Just uh, how much was, do you think that is, so like even a tenner? when you're on 10 pounds a week, what do you think that is comparable to well, now? I, just for- I can best relate it by saying my grant for 10 weeks was 80 quid at that time. So for me to get a tenner, it, it, I, got, I got a tenner plus bonuses. There weren't many bonuses, I must admit. But like for a young student then, I was thinking, well, you know, this Rolling is good. And yeah. I, I was able to buy, I bought a car for 400 pounds. I know that, I remember that. And... Uh, you know, that that was gave me a lift on the other students. But ironically, because I then signed the contract, I then had to repay, because I was earning, I had to repay my tuition fees. Oh. So there was sort of a backhanded stab in the back. <laughs> yeah. you know, a year or so later, I had to pay, repay all my tuition fees. I know that Tommy Doherty was really influential, influential, should I say, in you completing your degree. Oof. And he let you train, was it one night a week? Well, the whole thing was was really bizarre and brilliant. You know, I, I always say the doc had probably the biggest effect on my life outside of my father. Because at that very first meeting, I was coming up to my second year. I got transferred in the February, obviously May, June, I would have been doing exams. And I said to him, I said, I was excited, nervous, anxious. And I said to him, I said, listen, they just paid for me. I thought, I've got to try and deliver some goods. I said, as long as I finish my second year, I can do my third year any time. Mm-hmm. I said, is it okay if I finish my second year? At that stage, this was the Wednesday. We were playing Cardiff at Old Trafford on the Saturday. It's second division, of course. Yeah. And um, he said to me, absolutely not. He says, you're going to finish your degree. He says, he said, something which has stuck to me with me to this day. He says, uh, you know, as a, a footballer, he says, football will chew you up and spit you out. He says, you'll soon be yesterday's news. He says, you get your degree, it's with you for life. And I've hardly used my degree in life. But to a certain extent, people think I'm intelligent because I've got a degree. (laughs) So it has been that, what he said to me there was a huge, huge blessing. And somehow it worked. From that day on, I was substituting the first game on the Saturday against Cardiff. That was amazing as well, that one particular day. I'll explain it a little bit later, but... For the rest of that season, we had 10-11 games, we got promotion, and then there was a sort of decision to make the following year. Looking, as soon as my schedule came out to university, I only had Tuesdays free. I had lectures, tutorials the rest of the week. So I I took it with Tommy Cavana, who was the coach, he was a scouser as well. And um, I took it to him. I said, listen, I've only got the one day, I can try and manipulate. He said, no, it's all right. He said, you come and train on Tuesday. So I trained with the team on a Tuesday, but we had a lot of games on a Tuesday. So yeah. some weeks I never trained. And luckily, or never trained with the team, I trained by myself. I played in goal for my department at university, was commerce and econ- economics. So in the interdepartmental league on a Wednesday, I used to play in goal. I thought, I can't play out because I might get injured. So I played in goal. <laughs> did, did United know you were playing? Uh, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and now with phones and t- cameras, yeah, uh, yeah. I couldn't get away no with chance. it. But I, I played in goal for Comic-Con and uh, the year I played in goal, which was my third year in university, we got to the final of the Interdepartmental Cup. Ooh. 
when I have to admit that maybe the coming on goalkeeper didn't have his best game because geography won 5-1. <laughs> so I think I might have been a, a little bit of a loss for crosses, you know, coming to claim a few crosses. But, you know, that was my week. I'd, uh, I would train by myself all the time. A Wednesday, for when we met with Comic-Con, I'd do a little bit of training myself and then play in the game. Wow. And then inevitably, the university... Uh, sport you'd have a couple of beers afterwards and then uh, you'd be playing you know in front of 60 odd thousand here it was just looking back there's no reason why it shouldn't work today but it would never work today no. it's an incredibly unique story like everybody we talk to certainly when we're talking about their formative years and their passions for football and where that all started everybody says the same sort of thing i love football my focus was football maybe they enjoyed school maybe they didn't but their focus was football and for you to sort of it's sort of almost not true because you had other yeah, things yeah. to focus on were there other people you played with that were at university or had degrees and did people treat you differently did your teammates oh, treat you differently um maybe not the teammates but at the time obviously just in front of me was alan gowling who was a graduate as well here at united but again he played after he'd finished and there was steve highway brian hall like i was at liverpool university and Brian Hall, who was playing for Liverpool first team while I was at university, he used to come to the canteen at the university because it was subsidised food for his lunch. I very often saw Brian Hall, who was playing for Liverpool on Saturday, and must have been earning good money. And I'd be in the canteen, you know, in between lectures, getting a meal, and there in the corner would be Brian Hall getting subsidised food. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were at university in Liverpool playing for Manchester United. Did that yeah. cause any? No, no, none whatsoever. No, none whatsoever. You know, it was. Uh, I I had a group of about two or three mates. We did more or less the same courses. So, and I had a car, so I'd pick them up on the way into university, and we'd do lectures and tutorials. If by chance I missed a lecture, I'd pick up their notes and things like that. So it was protected, but again. You know, I was walking around the campus. No one would ever, ever, you know, Mention talk to anything. me, recognize me, whatever, nothing. Incredible story. What, how influential were your teammates when you first joined the dressing room? Because you'd not really had that much experience of professional football, a couple of years at Tranmere. Who kind of helped you to settle in? I know you said Tommy Doherty was very influential, but in terms of your teammates, who helped you? Well, the first week, I think I signed on the Wednesday and then... The doc had said to me, he said, uh, uh, you'll, be, you'll be included for Saturday. He didn't say I was playing or anything. He said, you'll be included on Saturday. We're playing Cardiff. He said, we have a pre-match meal at Old Trafford Cricket Club. You know, at that time, I'd never been to Manchester, I don't think. So I had the, the issue, you know, before Waze and everything else. I'm thinking, how do I get to Old Trafford Cricket Club? So I, I drove somewhere in Manchester, stopped, asked somebody and got here, 12 o'clock. And it was very much, I hadn't met any of the team. I go, you suit and tie, you go into the cricket club. And I'm thinking, oh, blimey. Uh, Martin Buckham was great. You know, he was a captain um, in the true sense of the word. He sort of came over, introduced me to people. And, you know, big football fan. I'm being introduced to Lou Macari, mm. Martin himself, uh, Brian Green, of all these people. I'm thinking, oh, I've only ever seen them on the telly. And it, I was in awe of them and very mindful of, you know, not saying anything or doing anything stupid. And then the doc said to me, oh, you'd be sub today. So I thought, brilliant. But the irony, irony of that was, you know, I'd said to you that Tranmere were away. Uh, Aldershot, my boots were with uh, the Tranmere team at Aldershot. So I turned up, not really expecting to be involved. So I was, said to Tommy no Cavanagh, I said, listen, you know, I'm sorry, I've got no boots. So when we got to the ground, I was looking at all the like, second, third pair of boots and the other players. So I ended up playing in Stuart Pearson's like third or fourth pair. He let, he let me use them. So um, I was sub, and after an hour... What can you remember about that day? 
nothing about the day, but I remember sitting on the bench and at the time United were going through a little sticky patch. They stormed the second division. Doc had promised we'll get promotion, we'll be back next year and all this. And he, um, very, very low key. I always remember at the old traffic cricket ground, I'm thinking, I can't wait to hear the team talk. And it was along the lines of, well, I was at a dinner this week and a fella told a joke about this. <laughs> and it was basically just the joke. And then he said, listen, just go out today, relax, express yourselves, do your thing, you'll be all right. But it was a sticky time for the team. I always remember that. And we, uh, for an hour, nothing was happening. And I sensed I was going to get a shout to go, come on. And at the time, there were rumours in the press that maybe Doc wasn't getting on very well with Willie Morgan. So, and Willie was a big favourite here, of course. Mm -hmm. So, he says to me, right, get warmed up, you're coming on. So, get the side of the pitch. I can't remember whether it was numbers then or whatever. Anyway, Willie's dragged off. And there's a sort of chorus of half booze and what's he doing, what's going on? When the substitution was made, we had a corner. So I'm running on to the pitch, to this sort of chorus of half booze, thinking, well, I've done nothing yet. What are you moaning <laughs> me for? <laughs> and I literally, at the Strefford end, I didn't make the edge of the box. They took the corner and Stuart Houston, the left back, scored. So 1-0. I'm thinking, this is just unbelievable. Running onto the pitch, my heart was jumping out my yeah. chest I couldn't breathe and for us to score I'm joining in the celebrations and I've done nothing you know <laughs> jumping on people's backs and all this and I'm thinking this is just incredible and the, the first time I got the ball I had a panic up and I thought oh, I'm just going to get rid of it I crossed the ball into the box Stuart Pearson scored I thought this is just <laughs> beyond a dream and I I was involved. We won 4-0. I was involved in one more goal. And, you know, it was better than heaven. Did That's you all have I dreams, that? It, beyond, beyond. And then, you know, after the game, seeing my family, it was just the best feeling ever. You know, it, it's nice to own things in life, but feelings are what make you, you know, appreciate life. And that one, you know, the hour or so was just beyond anything you can ever buy mm. and then for the rest of the season I played I missed one game with a grumbling appendix but the rest of the season we were unbeaten and we we won the second division title and then uh, I did uh, exams at the end of the season and in those days United did five week world tours at the end of the season Five so weeks? Is that how long they, they went on they for? Did, <laughs> they did a five-week world oh. tour. I missed the first two weeks because I was doing my exams and I joined up with the team in Hong Kong. Never flown before. My first flight was from Manchester to Hong Kong. Stop-offs in Rome, I remember. Rome, Bombay, Mumbai now. And then to Hong Kong. And on the flight was Samat Busby. And I'd been told Samat was on the flight so I, I get on the flight and I said to the stewardess, I said, oh, I believe Samat Busby's here. No. I said, are you sure? I've been told he's on this flight. No, no, he'd, he'd be up at the front end, but he, he's not here. So I thought, oh, right. So after a couple of hours flying, I just went for a walk around the plane. And this was in the days when you could smoke. Right at the back of the plane, just in front of the toilets, was Samat with a pipe. He was smoking a pipe in the plane, along with like 40 or 50 other people smoking. <laughs> you can imagine the haze. <laughs> so I went and sat next to him. And again, you know, you talk about dreams come true. To, to listen to this man for what was almost eight hours off and on, talking about football, talking about life, talking about everything in this beautiful... Scottish bear he had it was just sensational what, did you introduce yourself or did he know who you were no he didn't know who I was I introduced myself yeah but he knew I was on the flight but he wouldn't have known me but it was uh, wow. it was again 
you know, memories you look back at, you think, did that happen? And it did. So I ended up then doing the last three weeks of the world tour, which was, again, bearing in mind they'd never flown before. It was Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, Los Angeles. So, Some trip that, by the way, isn't it? I want to know why Sir Matt Busby was at the back of the plane and not the front as well. Smoking. Smoke. <laughs> oh, just for smoking? Just for smoking. You smoke at the front. Yeah. Did he share any specific <laughs> stories that stuck with you? No, well, the one thing which stuck with me, and it, it didn't really occur to me until many, many years later, I was playing for England and Sir Matt was on the English International Committee and we played a game once against Germany at Munich and as we flew into Munich, there was like two foot of snow at the airport and just by some sheer fluke of the configuration of the aircraft, as we were coming into land with two foot of snow in between the seats and the angles, I was looking diagonally across at his face as we were landing. And I was thinking, what on earth yeah. is thinking? going through his mind? Yeah. Two foot of snow landing at Munich. Did not twitch, did not twitch a muscle. And I saw him afterwards. I didn't ask him specifically. I just said, are you okay? And he said, yeah, yeah fine. Looking wow. forward to the game. Wow. Brilliant. Brilliant. Memories. That is unbelievable. So your second season, at this point, had you now graduated? No, no, second season, no, I was doing my final year at university. Was that a four-year degree then? Three. No, I was transferred halfway through my second year. Right, okay, we got yeah. promotion the second year. And then my third year was our first attack at the first division. And, you know, Doc was pronouncing us as being a team to contend with. And I imagine that's a season with lots of highlights, but scoring in front of the cop must be right up there. Well, bittersweet because we got beat 3-1. But... <laughs> was your dad in the cop? No, 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 no. Posh seats by then. <laughs> he was, uh, the whole thing, the whole experience was of the season. I think our first game, I've got Wolves in my mind for some reason. We played Wolves away and we beat them. The mo one of the most significant games for me was playing Leeds United at Old Trafford. And this was the Leeds United, you yeah. know, with the Norman Hunter, Billy Bremner, Johnny Giles, all these legends who were on the slippery slope a little bit at the time. And I think we beat them here as well, 3-2. And I thought then, we've got a chance here. We've got a chance. And we did well all season. And that's when the sort of FA Cup mantra developed. You know, Doc came up, with, he kept saying, to win the FA Cup, you only have to win six games. And we were capable of beating anyone six games. So, you know, the, the, the season sort of built up. And all the time I'm studying. So it was difficult. And relationship with the players was good because it was a young team. I think maybe if it was an older team, it might have been more judgmental on me. But the fact that we were winning and, you know, with Brian Greenoff in particular, a room with Brian, um, uh, Sammy McElroy, there was a young element to the side. And the way we played was just super aggressive. You know, you talk about pressing now. We, we never called it a press, but that's what we did. We pressed, get the ball forward and wide, get crosses in. The crosses didn't have to be perfect. You know, the dock always, when we were in training, doing crossing, as you were about to cross, he would scream, violence, violence. He wanted the ball smashed across the six-yard line. He said, if we don't score, they'll score no goal. They'll bounce ricochet off everything. And we were squeezing the pitch because this was back in the day when if you were standing by the corner flag picking your nose and you were in an offside position, the flag would go up. You know, it's not like now. So we took advantage of that and we were super high presses, win the ball back. All good athletes. Lou McCarty was sensational athlete. He could run all day. Jerry Daly, Sammy, you know, real fit, fit people. So it, 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 things went well, right? More or less from the start of that season. And as a, a sideline, there was the, um, the FA Cup, which was just 
ticking along nicely. So at one stage we were contenders to get the double, but it petered out a little bit. So that semi-final, or sorry, that final was against Southampton. Yeah, which didn't really go to plan. No, 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 no. It was um, it was strange, really, because we were red off favourites and they'd planned uh, a parade round the town the next day in advance. You did still go on that as well, didn't we you? Said that we yeah. still went on it, yeah. yeah. We got beat 1-0, obviously offside. If VAR today, it wouldn't have been allowed. But we we never played, we never got going. It was just not our, our day. And we came back the next day. And then we had the thing, the town hall, the doc got up and he says, uh, you know, sorry, we didn't bring the cup home. He said, but I guarantee in 12 months time, we'll be back here with the cup. And all the team are going, oh no, what's he saying? <laughs> but lo and behold, 12 months later. He was right, that was two things that he said. He said you would get promoted and he said yeah. you would win the FA Cup the next year. Yeah. There was loads of other He's things he said, which yeah. never happened, by the way, you know. He, <laughs> He was very good at sort of pushing uh, agendas out there, which never materialised. But did you enjoy playing for him? Oh, sensational! Every day was different. Mm-hmm. Quite often in training, he would pick on someone. You know, it, it didn't matter who it was, and you knew after five minutes that you were the target of the abuse of the day. And uh, you know, it, it just kept you on your toes. And even you know, some games we'd be two 0 up half time. He'd come in and you. And then other games, we'd be 2-0 down. He'd just say, don't worry about it. Keep on playing. You'll be all right. You know, every day was different. Unpredictable. He was such a live wire. He was great company to be in. Uh, But if you crossed him, then you were out. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd tell everyone. You know, he'd say that little so-and-so. He had a sort of love-hate relationship again with Lou McCarty. Lou was brilliant at this period. And... Doc would say in team talks, you know, if that little so-and-so don't perform, as soon as he's not performing, he says, he's down the road. I'm getting rid of him. <laughs> this is in front of everyone. I'm thinking, is this what management's about? But it worked. You know, Doc, you know, Lou, you know, to this day, it's water off a duck's back. It wouldn't yeah. bother him at all. And it didn't bother him. And he played some fabulous football at that time. So, you know, going back to Wembley was just... It was strange for me, because as a closet Liverpool fan, they were going for the treble. My brother was a huge Liverpool fan, went to Rome, I think they played the European Cup final four days later. He went to Rome to watch Liverpool in the final, and then we we spoiled the party by thankfully winning. What was that build-up like for the 77 Cup final? Can you remember that? Well, we... um, I can't remember where we stayed for the 76 final, but... Southampton stayed at Selsdon Park, which is in Croydon, which is South London, which is a lifetime away from Wembley. But because Southampton had stayed there, the following year, we stayed there. Lucky hotel. It's it's miles away from, you know, you would never even think, I think it's closing down now, you'd never think of staying there. It's like an hour and a half. And on the day, it's baking hot, no AC in the coach. You know, the, uh, the suits were a bit blotchy by the time you got there. So uh, those kind of things, certainly for the doc, were very, very important. You know, those sort of little superstitions. And and on the day, it wasn't a great game. But cup, cup final song? Three cup final songs. The worst singer ever. Uh, on an England song as well yeah, for the yeah, 82 yeah. World 82. Cup. I can't remember what the cup final song. We met, I always remember we made an LP at the studios in Stockport, where 10CC used to make their music, we made an LP in two hours. <laughs> so, you know, the, the anything LP to make a, money. It's like an album, isn't it? LP is an album, yeah. Full on, yeah. On, Sam. So you made a whole album in two hours. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, Sammy yeah. McElroy's talked to us about this. Was he involved in that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, Who was, made all the lyrics up then? Just no, they were all uh, the United songs with, with silly songs. Yeah. Uh, does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the goalpost overnight? You know, classics. <laughs> oh, that, that one, well. yeah. Yeah, remember that one. No. <laughs> yeah. So you know those kind of things. Anything to cash in. You know, in those days, the the six weeks before the cup final was 
seen as like players bonus yeah. time you know if you could make money from the players pool and then on, once you've done it you realize that the following year you get a tax bill so you've spent you've chased your tail for six weeks <laughs> you know and they charge you for the price of the suits the cup final suits well that's worth 280 quid you know it was 140 quid tax you're joking <laughs> so you know it, it's part of the experience, but it's a waste of time. You know, that's, and now it's totally irrelevant. But in those days, you know, in those days, Excuse again, me. one of the most important people at the uh, cup final was the person who filled in the lines on your boots. Because if you were Adidas, someone, whoever painted the three stripes to make them more visible in the cup final, as a player, you got 200 quid in cash. So that was important. You know, the cup final boot money. Wow. And our first cup final, 76, we all wore goaler boots. And that was the deal. The whole we team? Had. The whole team yeah. wore goaler. Except, I think, for Martin, yeah. who had his own private contract with Adidas. But the rest of us wore these goaler boots, which were, you know, decent boots. But uh, You got a few quid for it. 200 quid. Yeah. You know, in, in those days as well, you know, you, whatever you made from the cup final pool was a significant part of mm-hmm. your income. Well, certainly for me, when I signed for United, I was on the £60 a week. So yeah. I was quite happy if we got yeah. 200 quid for a word in the boots. Sensation. So what was the cup final like, obviously playing against your boy heroes? Mixed emotions, or obviously, I know you... No, 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 up. no mixed emotions. No. Um, you did, know, you get, did, did you get nervous before any games? Yeah, I got nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, a good nervous. Yeah, always a good nervous. Yeah. Not not a paralysed nervous. I was always anxious, nervous, anticipation, nervous, rather than you know I can't leave the yeah, toilet yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, um, and again, it affects people in different ways. You know, Gordon McQueen, McQueen used to throw up all the time, so you know other people people can just cope with it better. Yeah, um, but the Liverpool one you know, very much aware that they were the boss side at the time and we knew it was going to be a tough one to beat them. But, you know, we just about managed it, just about. Mm -hmm. It could have gone either way and thankfully it went our way. What was the rivalry like between United and Liverpool at that point? Uh, Intense. I only sort of became more aware of it. Uh, England get-togethers because it was sort of, you know, Liverpool players... Well, I, I certainly wanted to talk to them to see, well, what do they do that's different, makes mm. them more successful? And um, they didn't give much away, for sure. But I had huge respect. Emlyn Hughes, um, you know, he was a fierce England man. So when you got together at England get-togethers, he was full on about, you know, playing for the shirt and the country and all this. And I thought that was brilliant. Um, but looking at their players, Ray Clemens sadly just sadly left us. He was an exceptional. He was a natural goalkeeper, whereas Peter Shilton, who was his, they sort of swapped the shirt for a number of years. Peter Shilton was more manufactured. We used to do shooting training at the end of training, and like Clem would go in for five or six shots and say, "That's it, I've had enough." And then Shilton would be there for the next hour, mm. and yet they were both. Top top goalkeepers, Phil Neal. You know, there's some really top top Liverpool players, and you could see how they were successful, but they certainly didn't give much away. So, what did it feel like when the whistle went and you'd won the FA Cup? Uh, it was a baking hot day, and you know, now when you look back at nutrition and how important it is, and hydration, and you know, some of the pre match meals, yeah. I used to have cornflakes. So you're playing a cup final in 90-odd degree heat on a bowl of cornflakes. You know, it's ridiculous. Was um, that just your specific meal or would it have been... That was mine. But a lot of people, Yeah. Steak and chips <laughs> and loads of boxes stuff of like cornflakes. that. Or, well, it, it, the steak and chips story was... Up, in England wouldn't have been yeah. invented then. Kevin Moran was the steak and chips one because yeah. I remember when he first came to play for United, the pre-match meal, again, we're having sort of boiled chicken and yeah. cornflakes. And he came in at a, a full roast, followed by apple pie and custard. And I'm, Sounds I'm like a thinking, pretty good meal. Have, you can't have that for a pre-match meal. He changed it over the years because it was obviously, uh, it took some digestion, I'm sure. But 
You know, again, <laughs> my vinyl, I look at it now and it, it, you're almost seen to be a wimp if you took a drink. So definitely didn't hydrate. So at the end of the game, you know, my mouth was like bottom of a birdcage. I'm yeah. gagging for a drink. and But just so happy that Doc's premonition, prediction had come true because for us to traipse back to Manchester again mm. and a, well, we did wouldn't you, have had Did the you stay in London after uh, the game? Or did you stay yeah, we did. We yeah. stayed overnight and got the train back the next day and we had uh, some Good kind banter. of parade. Yeah. Yeah. It was, well, we had quite a few. Lou didn't, doesn't drink. We had a, a, a few drinkers, but not yeah, many, really. No. We never had any legends at that time. <laughs> Big Al Stepney was, he could yeah. shift it when he needed to, but <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a culture at all no. at the club. Not then. Okay, that's all you're getting for part one of our conversation with Steve Koppel. Here's what you can expect, though, from part two next time. He phoned me up about six weeks before the game, Dennis Roach, and he says to me, uh, have you got gifts for the players? Because that's what you do with testimonials. You give them gifts. You don't pay them. You give a token gift, commemorate the, uh, the game. So I said, no, no, I've got a couple of ideas, but I haven't really got an idea. He said, I can sort that out for you. I said, what have, you, what have you got in mind? To this day, I was convinced he said Waterford Crystal. Keep the wives happy with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have the game and afterwards you have a meal with two teams. I'm just about to go on the stage to make, say thank you to everyone, make a presentation to the players of both teams. And Dennis was there. He said, oh, I've got the... Uh, the stuff. So I opened the top of one of the boxes, expecting to see Waterford Crystal. Crystal. Look at the box. Watford Crystal. (laughs) 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 So I'm just about to famous (laughs) that we don't know. So up there, and Robbo was at the side of the stage leading on the United team and he sees what for Crystal? And he just looks at me. He says, Are you having a laugh or what? I said, no, Robbo. I've got to explain it. 